thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, president of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. Well, welcome to this week's episode of God, Law, and Liberty as we continue our series on the rule of law. And I'm going to say something shocking right off the bat today. The rule of law does not exist in the United States today because the church gave up the foundation upon which a true understanding of the rule of law rests. You recall last week we mentioned out of the book by Harold Berman, Law and Revolution, the history of the Western legal tradition, that essentially the Western legal tradition, which espouses the rule of law, was rooted in the history of the development of Christianity, sort of the Historia Salutis, the history of salvation, as the church grew in its understanding of what Jesus had proclaimed and who he was, and the the rituals and beliefs and doctrines that developed worked their way into our legal traditions. And, and we noted that that we have laws today that we still follow that actually don't make any sense anymore because we don't understand the basis or the origin of them in the Christian doctrines out of which they rose. But, but more fundamentally than particular laws we might not understand, the rule of law cannot exist without the God of the Bible. Now, you might say, well, how did Christianity then give up the basis for the rule of law? Because we still believe in God. But we believe in a truncated gospel, my friends. We believe in a half gospel. We believe in a small Jesus rather than a cosmic Jesus, a cosmic God. And I want to talk to you a bit about that today. Because you see, I can talk about the rule of law and I can give you all kinds of logic and philosophical, metaphysical foundations for the rule of law. But if as a Christian I can't root them in the Scripture, then it may not be a correct understanding of the rule of law and consistent with the historical understanding of the rule of law, which I am telling you today was rooted in a certain belief about God that was fundamental to their understanding of Christianity, which is no longer fundamental to our understanding of Christianity, and it was fundamental to the law, and therefore, when we give up part of what the Bible says, when we give up part of what used to be considered fundamental in Christianity and was fundamental to the rule of law, then we've given up the rule of law. Now, what am I talking about? I'm talking about what I've talked about multiple times on this program, going back to the March 19th episode with Andrew Sandlin, through the series on the why and how of Christian political engagement, and that is that we have to begin the understanding of all things with the very first verse of the Bible. God is and God created. As Dr. George Grant said, and I've repeated it also many times out of our um, Restoring the Vision conference, whatever it is you are looking at, you have to begin with who is God and what has he done? Who is God and what has he done? Creation, my friends, is the context in which man is situated and it provides the context for a right relationship then between God and the rest of the creation. Now, 
you're going to say to me, well, David, we believe that God created the earth. And I'll say, well, yeah, we, we say we believe that. But how relevant is it to modern evangelicalism and Christianity? As Andrew Sandlin said, we really start our explication of the scriptures and of the gospel with Genesis 3.15. Man is in a fallen state, in a fallen world, and he needs a savior. But see, the creation was very good. And God wanted that creation to be further developed, further filled, further brought to all of its glories, latent in what he made. And we act as if, well, that ain't gonna happen, so we went to plan B, which is save us and take us all off to heaven because this is a bad place. Now see, that's dualism, that's Gnosticism, it's terrible stuff. And it's rampant in the church today. And with that kind of belief, you really can't have the rule of law. So let's take a look today just a little bit about the importance of the doctrine of God and creation to everything, and in this particular context, to the rule of law. Now, I'm going to start right here with 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4 and verse 6. One of the things that it says that, that was astounding to me that I had never seen is it really gives us a definition of Christian that is different from what we typically hear. A Christian is a person who believes in Jesus Christ for his salvation. You know, a Christian is a person who doesn't smoke, drink, and chew, and whatever else. We, we come up with all kinds of definitions of Christians and all kinds of definition of what constitutes sin. But, but the Apostle Paul in those passages says, those who are perishing are those who have not come to see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So the lost is a person who's not seen the glory of Christ. And he's saying the glory of Christ is that he is the image of God. In verse 6, he contrasts that to the Christian. And, and notice that what he says there is that the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness. And there's going back to the original creation. By analogy, he's saying, even as there was darkness and God commanded the light to shine forth, all men now live in darkness. We walk and live in darkness because we're falling. And the God who commanded light to shine in darkness has commanded the light to shine on us that we might have the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Do you see the connection between those two verses? A Christian is a person who has come to the knowledge of the glory of God and the glory of God and the knowledge of the glory of God is inextricably tied up in, bound to, seeing the glory of Christ because he is the image of God. And so it is that Paul defines sin as falling short of the glory of God. Now, we can say all kinds of things about we've come to the knowledge of the glory of God and we've We've come to the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. We've seen the glory of Christ. And, and friends, I, I will tell you, I might have said that to you several years ago, but I would have not understood what it meant. What it really means when you come back to the beginning, 
is ultimately that you see that the glory of God is that he is God and we are not. It's exactly what George Grant said. God is God and we are not. Therefore, everything begins with who is God and what has he done? It is seeing the glory of God that is all around us. Think about Moses. When God tells him to now pick up the tabernacle and let's move on to the promised land, Moses has a little come to Jesus meeting, so to speak, with God. And he says, no, no, wait a minute. I'm not going to go if your presence isn't going to go with me. And he said, well, okay, I'll go with you. And he said, but show me your glory. What did he want to see? The glory of God. He wanted to see the glory of God, which is the, the manifest revelations and expressions of all that God is, all of his moral perfections, all of his purity and beingness and infiniteness and eternality. He says, I want to I want to see your glory. And what does God say to him? You, you can't see my face or you would perish. You're a fallen individual. You can't see the very essence of who I am and my ontological sort of being, you can and you'd perish. But if you'll hide over here in the cleft of the rock, I'll pass by and you can see my hind parts and I'll tell you a few things about me. But my face no man can see. Now, what's interesting about that is that we, when Isaiah gets this vision of God in chapter 6, of the Lord sitting on his throne in his, the train of his robe is filling the whole temple. It's a it's an imagery of the greatness of this king. Not that he's got a long train, not that it goes to the, to the outside doors of the temple, but it fills the whole of the temple. By comparison, no king's train is like this king's train. And, and he notes that the cherubim or the seraphim have wings to cover their eyes because, you see, they're still creaturely beings. Different from us, they're spiritual beings, but, but they effectively have to cover their eyes because they cannot either see the full glory of the God about whom they cry, holy, holy, holy. Everything about God's being is pure and holy. His knowledge, his wisdom, his understanding, his power, his moral purity, everything. It is infinite and it is eternal. And what's interesting in that vision is right after the angels say, holy, 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 they say, the whole earth is full of his glory. Now, why do they do that? I would submit to you, my friends, it's because we can't really see God because it would be destructive of a created being to see him as he really is. But we can see the manifestation of his glory in everything around us. That's where you can see the glory of God in creation. Now, when, when you start reading through the Psalms in particular, when you start reading through some of the prophets, just start noticing how many times when they're down or they're depressed or they're worried, or uncertain about the future, do they retreat to considering the heavens and the earth and what God has made because it is a revelation of the glory of God. Now, where do we see this in the New Testament? This same strain picks up. Let's, let's look at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount when he's telling everybody, look, don't be worried about what you're going to wear and what you're going to eat and, and, and what roof you're going to have over your head. Your Father has, your Heavenly Father knows you have need of all these things. 
So what does he point to them as proof to assure them that in fact God, as the heavenly Father, will take care of his own? Now, not all are his own. All are his own in the sense of being creaturely but not knowing him as a heavenly Father because they don't know the elder son, Jesus. And they don't know, therefore, Jesus' his Father as a heavenly Father. But he points to the birds and to the flowers of the field. He points back to the goodness of creation, God's creating and his sustaining the creation to encourage them because it reveals the glory of this heavenly Father. Now think about the disciples. Right after they've had this experience of, of Pentecost, and then they're whipped, and some of them are whipped and beaten and thrown into jail, and, they, and they're released, and they meet back with the disciples. They go in the upper room, and they pray about that situation. And notice how they pray. In Acts chapter 4, it says, When they had been released, they went to their own companions and reported all the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, notice the first things out of their mouth, O Lord, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. They began by calling to mind, this is the God of the heavens and the earth who created them by the might of his power, according to his wisdom and knowledge and understanding, who spoke them into existence. This is my heavenly Father, and I call this to mind. Now, therefore, notice their rantings and their ravings, and Lord, grant us boldness to go forward. Now, let's move this forward into Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 is the beginning of Paul's book on systematic theology. And where does he begin? With the incarnation, Jesus came in a stable. Does he begin with telling people about Jesus died on the cross and was resurrected? Does he begin with Jesus ascended into the heavens and then he winds his way backwards, you know, like we see sometimes in the movies? No, he begins with, man, the righteousness of God is revealed from the heavens. From there till the key verse in Romans chapter 3 where he says, For all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. It is about what we can't not know out of the created existence. And so he moves on in chapter 1 verses 17 through the end of that chapter talking about the fact that they knew God. He doesn't say that there was some obfuscation and they might have known God if they'd tried hard enough. No, it is it is that they knew God, and they hated the knowledge of God. Their unrighteousness, they sought to suppress it. And what did they do, having known the glory of God from the created order? No special revelation here in chapter 1. This is just general revelation. In light of what they knew of God from the created glory, or from the glory of the creation. They exchanged the glory of God for things he had created. Wow. Now, here's what's so interesting today. We try to speak into a world without starting with the one thing that we can all connect with, our very existence. And we skip over to you need a savior for your sins. 
I remember sitting, at, you know, at, at meetings, you know, Christian businessman luncheons and all these sorts of things. And there was a clear presentation that if you believe there's a God, and if you believe you've offended that God, then I'm offering you a way to salvation. But what do you do when you're talking to the Epicureans and the Stoics, like Paul was on, on Mars Hill in Acts 17? Do you start out with, you've offended God and you need a Savior? No, you have to start out with, I see that you're a religious people. Let's connect some dots here to things that you already know and believe. And, and the fact of the matter is, what does the psalmist say in Psalm 139? He says, look, if I went to, to Sheol, God would still be there. His being is everywhere. Nothing exists apart from the being of God. And if I went to the remotest parts of the universe, why well, God would have beat me there. You can't escape the revelation of the creation of God, both within us and around us that we see. And we skip out on that. We don't tie things back to in the beginning God. And if you don't start there, as you'll see in next week's podcast, you have absolutely no basis for a true or even a historical understanding of the rule of law. And that's why we no longer have it, because Christians started the gospel in the wrong place and left out what Paul said can't be left out if you really want to understand the gospel and why all men, are under the wrath of God because what we know about God is obvious. It's plain. We don't know the glory of God in the face of Christ. We hate the knowledge of the glory of God we see in creation, but it's not that we can't know some things. Can we not? Can we come to the knowledge of salvation through the general revelation of creation and what God has made? Absolutely not. But you know what we've done is we've assumed because you can't come to a saving knowledge of God through general revelation. General revelation is no longer important, and we throw that baby out with the bathwater and begin with you need a Savior. But the reality is what Paul is saying, creation speaks so loudly to you that when you confront it and you're forced to confront it and, and you don't run away with it, away from it, and the Christian presses it upon you and presses it upon you and presses it upon you, you see your need for a Savior. So when the church abandons this, it abandons the great boundary line between God and man and the knowledge that we need a Savior, a mediator between God and man. And when we abandon the Creator, and the law of the creation, we abandon the rule of law. So as Christian and Christian lawyers began to minimize the importance of creation, we gave away the rule of law. Now I'm going to give you just a quick 30,000 overview of what began to happen here. So you have David Hume come along in the late 1700s and he says, you know, we really can't know anything. I mean, I hate to say it, but that's what Dave, David Hume said. We can't really see everything based upon empiricism because we don't know, for example, when, when we move the cue stick to hit the cue ball, that there might have been something intervening right before the cue hit the cue ball that caused the cue ball to move. So we're really, we only think that the cue stick caused the cue ball to move. And maybe before it hit the eight ball, something else intervened that we couldn't quite empirically see, and that's what caused the eight ball to move, not the cue ball striking the eight ball. 
he in essence destroyed the ability to have any knowledge. So along comes Immanuel Kant shortly after that, and he says, gosh, we've got to deal with this. This is very destructive. We can't just base things on everything we see. So what he says is, there are realities that, that we can't see, but there's nothing in the phenomenal world, the, the world of things, that we can assume would teach us anything about the noumenal world, about the spiritual world. So exactly contrary to what the scriptures say, exactly contrary to what Paul says in Romans chapter 1, Kant says nothing in the created order can tell us anything about the spiritual order or the transcendent or about God. Then you have, shortly following him, a guy named Schleiermacher, who wrote a book called To the Religious Despisers. And he says, well, you know, let, let's, let's not get too caught up in dogmatics here because the real kernel of, of religion is our sense and our, our feeling of dependence on this, on this God. And, and so we can pull away the shell of doctrine, like the shell of a peanut, and get down to the kernel. The real truth here is, is our sense of dependence and awe of God and all of that. And that led to the subjectivism that destroyed any objective theology. And then, of course, in America, we then run into the Scopes trial where a group of Christian businessmen trying to promote the economy at the expense of God decide they're going to prosecute some guy for teaching evolution and it would create such publicity that it would be a boon to the city and it would grow. Well, it hasn't really grown since then. But instead what happened is the church became embarrassed in light of the progress of Darwinism and having no response, no way to answer the metaphysical, the theological, the philosophical questions that, that, that Darwin still can't answer and evolution still can't answer, we retreated into a subjectiveness that had already been launched. And we denied the importance really of the creation even more because now we couldn't explain it. And there we go. It just fed into, let's not talk about this creation. Let's not talk about this God of creation. Let's just talk about that you need a Savior. But, you see, you don't need a Jesus of cosmic, redemptive significance because you don't really have a God of cosmic significance anymore. And there went the rule of law. Now, we're going to come back next week and we're going to look at the development of the rule of law. And you'll see how it is so rooted in creation that when the church gives away its doctrine of God as the creator and the importance of creation to the glory of God, then, well, you don't have a rule of law. And I hope you'll join me next week as we continue this series on the rule of law at God, Law, and Liberty. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.facttennessee.org. That's F-A-C-Tennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fact Tennessee.